Thank you, Jared. The rest of us can go ahead and take our copy of God's Word and we can turn in it to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. As we talk today about the story of man's rejection of God. Man's rejection of God as we continue in our Advent series this week. That's going to be page 807. If you've got a pew Bible close to you and you didn't bring a Bible with you, page 807. If you can find big number two on that page, we're going to begin reading in little number one, verse number one in just a second. By the way, I am Joshua. I'm the lead pastor here at Freshwater. If you're a guest with us, welcome. We're ecstatic that you're here. I would love to meet you before you leave for the day. So as you're finding that place in Matthew chapter two, Daryl Davis is an American R&B and blues musician. Incredibly talented dude, plays the piano and the keyboard, and he's black, which is a detail that's going to be important for this story. And the first time that he met a member of the Ku Klux Klan, he was the only black man in a country band. So they were playing a gig at an all-white bar or venue in Frederick, Frederick, Maryland, and after their set, a member of the audience approached Davis to compliment his piano skills, and he said, I've never seen a black man play like Jerry Lee Lewis, at which Davis replied, well, do you know who taught Jerry Lee Lewis how to play the piano? And the answer to that is a black man. So the two men kind of hit it off. The patron wanted to buy Davis a drink, and soon enough, the admirer um, admitted that he had never in his life had a drink with or even actually spoken to a black person. I was in 1983, So Davis replied back to him and he said, well, why is that? You know, how can a person go uh, their entire life, you know, you're well into your adult years, this guy he was talking to, and how is it that you can go that long and you've never even spoken to someone that is a different skin color than you? At which the guy replied, well, I'm a member of the Ku Klux Klan. And at first Davis thought he was joking, but the guy then proceeded to pull out his wallet and uh, show him his clan membership card. Apparently it's very similar to joining Sam's Club. You have some type of a card, I don't know. Not really sure how it works. But out of that meeting grew a friendship and grew a, a camaraderie that continues to culminate in kind of this bromance between this Ku Klux Klan member and Daryl Davis, this incredibly talented black keyboard player. Kind of an unlikely friendship to say the least. Now, we're going to return to that account in a minute, and I'm going to tell you how that account rounds up. But I want you to know that this morning is not about race relations. It's not about racial reconciliation, although those are totally biblical concepts. I share about Daryl Davis just to point out that jumping to conclusions about people, in his case, you know, jumping to conclusions about someone, about their skin color, before you've even met them, before you've even met anybody that has the same skin color, jumping to conclusions about people is something that occurs today But it's something that even occurs in the Christmas story. Do you realize that? That even in this great event of God coming down to live with us, the celebration that we call Christmas and that we hopefully are anticipating during this time of Advent, that even in the middle of that story, we find some people who have already rejected Jesus before they've even met him. It's really a sad account, and we actually find it in the account of the wise men. Now let me stop right there and let me kind of paint the Christmas picture so that all of this can come together. The Bible begins with God creating what? He creates everything that exists in six days. The sixth day is really the pinnacle of his creation when he creates mankind. And mankind is in perfect relationship with God until mankind chooses to sin against God. And when they sin against God, that perfect relationship is broken. It's severed. 
And the Old Testament, those opening books of the Bible, are kind of tracing the question as to how is mankind ever going to be able to be back in relationship with God again? So as you get through the Bible, you find that no mere person, no matter how important they might seem to be like David, or no matter how intelligent like Solomon, or no matter how strong like Samson, or no matter how wise like Solomon, or, or no matter who it is, nobody can make right what mankind has messed up. So you get all the way to the end of the Old Testament, you pick up in the New Testament, and the first book of the New Testament almost opens with God being born on earth, this event that we celebrate as Christmas, Jesus Christ being born of the Virgin Mary. The shepherds are told about his birth by the angels. You have the image of the baby Jesus being wrapped in swaddling clothes and and laid down in the middle of this manger in this stable. But also in the Christmas story, who else do you have involved? You have the three wise men, or the three kings as they're sometimes called. And in their account, we see a picture of how so many people immediately rejected Jesus Christ. Now, you might say, look, preacher, you know, I don't know the story of the three wise men real well, but it seems like they were good guys, weren't they? I mean, I, they are in every nativity image that you'll ever find today. They, they give Jesus gold and frankincense and myrrh. That's a good thing, isn't it? It doesn't seem like that's a picture of how Jesus was immediately rejected. And I would agree with you, but in the account of the wise men who bring these gifts to the baby Jesus, we find a man named Herod who rejects Jesus before he's even met him. So today what we're going to do is we're going to kind of dial in on that rejection that Herod has of Jesus. And we're going to ask ourselves, you know what, maybe there are elements of his rejection that are present in our hearts as well. Or maybe the reason that Herod rejected Jesus, maybe those are the exact same reasons that many of our loved ones and our neighbors and our co-workers are, are, are celebrating Christmas without Christ this year. Or maybe we can go as far as to say that if we're going to be able to reach those that are far from the Lord and those that have no interest in God or or anything about God, maybe it would do us well to look at the Christmas account through the eyes of a man that despised Jesus. He despised Jesus. So that's where we're going this morning. We're looking at the Christmas story through the eyes of a man who rejected Jesus before he'd even met him. This man that we know is named Herod. And in this account, as we work through it, we're going to see two reasons that many of our loved ones reject Jesus even to this day. This comes right out of the picture of Herod and his interactions with the wise men and his interactions with Jesus, we could even say. I'll go ahead and give you the first reason if you're doing the fill-in thing on your outline. If you've got a pen, here's going to be your first blank. The first reason so many people today reject Jesus is because Jesus was born with inherent authority. Jesus was born with inherent authority. Now, let's look at God's Word. Look at verses 1 through 6 to see this inherent authority. Matthew chapter 2. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And then he he quotes an Old Testament prophet, and he says, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now let's stop right there. We're going to pick up in verse 7 
in a couple minutes. But there are a couple things that I want you to know about this account before we really um, dig into it, this account of the wise men and Herod. First of all, I know that we've been trained to kind of think that the wise men show up to see Jesus that, that first night that Jesus is born. Uh, but that's just actually not true. Jesus is by this time likely a toddler. So this is probably a couple years after Jesus has been born, which definitely throws a wrench in all the nativity scenes that we have set up in our houses. You'll also notice the Bible never actually says there were three wise men. It doesn't say that. It doesn't tell us how many there were. We know that there was a group of them. We also know that they brought three gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. But Herod, Herod is the king at this point. Now, who is Herod? Well, let's kind of talk about him. Israel was occupied by the Roman Empire, and this man named Herod was the one that was doing his best to kind of control the land for the Romans. He was a ruthless man. He had by this point murdered his wife. He murdered several of his sons. He murdered several of his other relatives as well. He was known for building a lot of buildings. That was kind of his aspiration and kind of what he looked forward to was building all these beautiful buildings all across the country. But for our purposes this morning, his importance is really found in the fact that the wise men, when they make their way from the east to find the toddler Jesus, when they stop in Jerusalem and they start asking around, hey, where is this one that has been born? Where is this Jesus? Herod is incredibly interested in the baby that they're looking for. So interested, as a matter of fact, that Herod does everything that he can to find out where Jesus would be. And as we continue working our way through the account, we're going to find out that he wants to know where Jesus is so that he can kill him. That's what he ultimately wants. Now, we're going to get to all that later, but if we ask the question, okay, why was Herod the most powerful man we could say in the entire land. How is it possible that he could be so intimidated by the birth of a baby? Like, have you ever considered that? Like, how could he be so worked up over the birth of an infant? But as we look at the text, we found out that already Jesus was being introduced as one who would have authority over everyone. And we could say authority over everything. I mean, just take a second and think about the way that Jesus is described in these opening six verses. And actually, I'll go ahead and list them off, and these are in your outline, so if you're filling this in, we're going to go right through these four. But how did the wise men describe Jesus to Herod? What does it say in verse 2? Look in your copy of God's Word. He says, he is the king of the Jews. He's the king. How did they describe what he is due? Again, verse 2, they say, we have come to what? We have come to worship him, is what they say. When Herod is troubled about this news, he assembles the chief priests and the scribes to find out where the baby is going to be born. They quote from Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and how do they describe Jesus? They call him a ruler. They say he's going to shepherd the people of Israel. He's going to oversee them. He's going to take care of them. So just by a quick survey of what Herod was learning about Jesus, before he'd even met him, Herod may not have known much, but he knew enough to know that Jesus was an authority figure, wasn't he? And, and, and if the prophecies are correct, it's going to completely revolutionize the way the world worked for Herod. So when Herod sets out to kill Christ, which comes up in just a couple verses, Herod is intimidated by the authority and the power that is supposedly going to be obtained or be owned by Jesus Christ. And I'm going to make the case this morning that a lot of people you know, I mean, we talk about uh, why so many people don't follow Christ today, and we talk about why so many churches are void of millennials. Millennials are those of you, including me, that were born between 1980 and 2000. And a lot of people talk about, okay, why are millennials so absent from many churches? Don't allow anybody to convince you that, that it's just any reason. Don't allow anybody to convince you that it's because church music is old-fashioned. 
Don't allow them to convince you that it's because people are just too busy or it's because, well, we can be moral and not believe in God or whatever the the contemporary argument might be. It's really simple, and it's the exact same reason that they had 2,000 years ago. When you are born again, God stakes claim on your heart. That's what he does. That's what God is in the business of doing. And that's what Christianity is, isn't it? Christianity is a, a religion, not a religion, where you come and you hang out from 9 to noon or 11 to noon today or, or you know whatever that might be, and then you just kind of live the way that you want to live and live the life you really want every other day of the week. That's not what it is at all. That's not, that's not what Christianity looks like. That's not even similar to what it looks like. Christianity is Jesus is king of everything. Like he now reigns over every single part of my life. Everything about my family, everything about my job, everything about my finances, everything about my sex life, everything about everything is now ruled by Christ. If you didn't know, that's what it means to be a Christian. So Herod, being a heathen king, could even see that and could see how this kind of authority in his mind could potentially uproot his authority as the king of the land. Now, for us, why do so many people that we know, why do so many people that, that, that you love and that you pray for and hopefully that you witness to and share the gospel with, why do so many people reject that kind of authority? Why is that? Like, like, why does that make so many people nervous? Well, here's why. I'll just kind of give you an illustration, then you'll, and then you'll, you'll understand. It was um, uh, just earlier this last week, but I was getting the girls ready for school, and my oldest daughter, the one that you just saw get baptized, was distraught because she had lost her headband and her necklace, which she wears every single day to school, which is basically the equivalent of end of the world, no reason to continue living, go back to bed and um, wake up some other day. And she's angry because she's sure that her little sister, my two-year-old, had stolen it and had hidden it from her. Now, something you need to know is that my youngest daughter has definitely been in that phase where she hides everything and she thinks it's funny to hide it from you. So like toothpaste, toothbrushes, who knows? You just got to get up and just start searching in the morning. You might open the dryer and there's a bag of cookies. You never know. Now, she hid my wallet. She hid my wallet, and uh, we eventually found it. And then two days later, she had taken my debit card out of the wallet, and we found my debit card in her, in her closet underneath a Minnie Mouse doll, which was not cool. That's not cool. If you didn't know that, it's not cool to steal somebody and hide somebody's debit card. So when something goes AWOL and something just disappears, there's a pretty good chance in our house that London has hidden it. And I've told her again and again and again, hey, This is not okay. Like, you can't do this. You can't continue in life hiding all of our stuff. And you know when you've just gotten to the end of your ropes, parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, you know these little kids, and you're just like, okay, something has got to happen. This is as far as it goes. You've got to bring the hammer down. You've got to bring some loving discipline into the picture. That was where I was at. So I told her this many, many times. Stop hiding our stuff. You know, don't do it. Stop it. Like, stop it. You're cute. Don't get me wrong, but you can't continue to do this. It's not cute. So we get her up in front of us, and we ask her, hey, London, did you hide your sister's stuff? And she says, yes, I hid it. So we say, "Um, okay, well, where did you hide it? Go find it. So she goes, and she looks, and she searches the whole house, and she can't find it, and it can't be found, and, you know, it's a big ordeal. So I finally decide, okay, we got to put an end to this. So I get her up on my knee, um, 
You know, I make sure she knows what she's getting this for, and I give her a quick yet firm tap on one of those cute little butt cheeks that the Lord has given her. And she cries, and she repents, and everything's great, and I feel like a good father, right? Until Lainey, my seven-year-old, comes to me about five minutes later, and she has the missing items in her hand, and she informs me that she had forgotten that she had taken it all to the other bathroom on the other side of the house, earlier that morning, which means that London, my youngest daughter, had just confessed to a crime that she did not commit and then therefore was punished for a crime that she did not commit as well, which kind of ruined my day. I mean, to know that I had spanked my child for something she didn't do. Now, many of you know my two-year-old, and you know, look, she's done plenty that is worthy of spanking, so she might still be ahead in a lot of different ways. But in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, man, that's not fair. That's not okay. Here I am. I'm doing the best that I can. I'm trying to raise my children in the ways of the Lord, trying to discipline them in love, training in obedience, hopefully having good intentions, yet still doing what? Failing. Messing up, right? Well, you want to know why so many people buck against God's authority. At least one part of the multifaceted reasons that surround that issue is because every instance of an authority figure that you've ever experienced in your life has been with a flawed authority figure. Like, I loved what Nick said last week if you were here. He used to be a cop, and he was talking about, look, you know, cops are doing the best that they can, and they're, they're, they're trying to make the right decisions, but everybody makes mistakes. No cop is perfect. I make mistakes as a father. I make mistakes as a pastor. I've never made a mistake as a husband. Some of you guys have, and you need to pray about that and do a better job, but, you know, you make mistakes in the roles in your life that you have. The difference, though, and this is a huge difference, is that when we bow the knee to Jesus, we are bowing the knee to one that is always right. Like, he's never compromised. He never leads us astray. He's never going to make a mistake. He knows the perfect balance between grace and discipline. And that's why he deserves to be followed. Now, it's unfortunate that so many people don't catch that. And Herod, by the way, doesn't catch that. And we know that he doesn't catch it because of the second reason that so many people today reject Jesus. We've already seen the first reason because Jesus was born with inherent authority. Now the second reason, and it's very close to the first, Jesus was born deserving to be adored. Jesus was born deserving to be adored. Because look with me now in your copy of God's Word at verses 7 through 12. Verses 7 through 12. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let's stop right there and let's consider what happens in these verses. The story of Herod and the story of the wise men and how these two groups are kind of intermingled and intertwined, and it kind of goes back and forth between them. If it's an account about anything, it's an account about worship. It's an account where you are being asked the question, okay, are you going to be like Herod, 
who has no desire to worship anything but himself and the world and position and power and money and all these other things? Or are you going to be like the wise men who travel across the world to cast their admiration toward the Christ child? Like, which one are we going to... Which one are we going to be? And I want to correct something that might be on your mind. I know that there is something special about newborn babies and young children. I get it. I mean, I see it all the time. Anywhere I'm at, you can pull out an itty-bitty baby from a car seat, and it can have boogers and snot all over its face, and it can have like a blowout diaper, and, um, you know, its hair sticking up. looks like it was just birthed. And somebody holds that little bitty baby up, and people, you can just anticipate the oohs and the ahs, can't you? Like, I plug my ears, you know, I'm like, oh, here it comes. Here comes the mass roar of approval because of these beautiful little children that God has given us. Babies are adorable. We cherish them. Yes, that's true. Completely agree. But that's not the type of adoring that I'm talking about. The type of adoring that we see in this text is one that comes because even creation is bowing to the power of this God. Did you catch that? Like, just consider this star for a second. Let's just think about the star. This star is kind of a strange thing, if we admit it. If you remember back in verse 2, what did the wise men say in verse 2? They said, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. So it's kind of believed that these wise men, wherever they were from, some part of Asia, maybe India, who knows where they're from, but they, there was a star in the sky when Jesus was born. They associated that star with Old Testament prophecy, and they eventually made the long trek that it would have taken to come all the way to Israel. So a star had intrigued them. When they make the trip and they get to Jerusalem, what are they doing? After they've asked around about the newborn king of the Jews, Herod summons them, tells them that, hey, when you find him, let me know so that I can come worship him as well. And after they leave, another star, it says... In verse 9, rose and went before them and led them to where the child was. And this has provided a lot of commentary. Like, what exactly is this star? Like, what is it? Is it really a star? Like, we think about a star? Like, you know, a big ball of burning gas billions and billions of miles away? Or, you know, is it just an overgrown firefly? You know, what is it? Are they just describing what they saw in the only way that they can describe it? So they call it a star? You know, what exactly is this thing? And who knows, really? But we can say that the movement of the star and the way that it leads them into the toddler, Jesus, definitely tells us what? That it's a supernatural occurrence. That's the key. It's not by chance. It's not just some flip, uh, you know, infatuation with, with astronomy But think about this. God is bending nature. God is manipulating his creation so that these men can find Christ. Now why? Was God short on gold and frankincense and myrrh? So he needed to up his supply? No, of course not. It's because this baby deserved to be adored. The baby was born deserving to be worshipped. That's a pretty cool thing to think about, I think. Whatever the star exactly was, or whatever it looked like, God is willing to create and move stars, move the heavens, so that people can find him. Which, man, if you're a Christian, what an absolutely wonderful thing for you to think about this Advent. And don't see this as just a cool occurrence 2,000 years ago. All of the Bible is God doing what? Moving history so that his people can worship him in spirit and in truth. 
And even in your own life, think about what God has conquered in your life to draw you to himself. He's brought you from spiritual death to spiritual life. He's convicted you of your sin. He's given you faith. He's helped you to resist temptation. He's given you the Holy Spirit. He's put people in your life who share the gospel with you and hopefully work to disciple you. He's changed the way you see the world. He's changed the way, hopefully, that you see yourself. He's shielded you from much pain and suffering that comes with a life that is not being lived for Christ. He's provided for you. He's gifted you with knowledge and abilities for the edification of the church. I mean, when you start adding it up of everything that God has done in your life, pushing some stars this way or or pulling them that way is small fry compared to everything that he's done for you. Which is pretty cool, I think, to think about. Now, we're going to have to begin to move on. We're going to have to pause and let's kind of review this and think about what we've seen, and then we'll wrap this up and we'll ask the question, so what? As in, okay, now because of this text and what we've seen, what now? What, what now is supposed to occur? How are we supposed to be changed this morning? So what are we in? We're in this fourth week of Advent, aren't we? When we come back on Christmas Eve, we're going to look at how the Christmas story is a story of good news and how the good news of Christ's birth Uh, immediately begins to spread out over the world and how it is news that we should cherish. But this week we've seen these two reasons that people, even today, reject Jesus Christ. They're the same two reasons we see in Herod's life. First, Jesus was born with inherent authority. The wise men realize this. That's why they describe him the way that they do. And Herod rejects Jesus because of the perceived threat, probably, that he recognizes is going to mean for his kingdom, for his position, for the way that he operates. That was verses 1 through 6. Then that second reason, Jesus was born deserving to be adored. Where in verses 7 through 12, we see that there's a line being drawn in the sand and either you're a worshiper of God or you're not, right? No middle ground, no gray area, no free trial like you're getting Netflix or Hulu or whatever where you try it out for a while and then pull out. That's not it at all. You're either in or you're out. That's just the way that it is. So I was thinking about, okay, how does this kind of boil down for us? What's what's this kind of get to? What are some ways that maybe as we depart and we go out into this uh, frozen tundra, what are some ways that we should leave a little bit changed, a little bit different than the way that we walked in? What I've come up with are, are two beliefs, two beliefs that all of us might need to change. Two beliefs as a result of this text that all of us might need to change or at least be aware of and watch out for our hearts in our lives, as, uh, uh, and even the hearts and the lives of those that we love. And here's the first one. I'll give both of them, and then we'll be just about done. Number one, refuse to believe that man's kind, mankind's rejection of God is anything but a spiritual matter. I'm going to say that again because that's a, that's a mouthful. Refuse to believe that mankind's rejection of God is anything but a spiritual matter. What do I mean when I say that? A rejection of God always has a spiritual motivation. It always does. I mean, we can even look at Herod and we could say, well, what are the reasons that he was so intimidated by this baby? Was going to threaten his position as the king? If the people that he ruled over thought that the promised king had been born, they might rebel and they might revolt and they might kick against his authority. And that's kind of the the worldly surface-level answer. But what's behind that? What's behind that, that, that intimidation that he feels? Well, well, what's behind it is that Herod is finding his purpose and his fulfillment in worldly things rather than in God. That's what's behind that. And the same is true of everyone that you and I know that are not following Christ. The reason that we don't read our Bibles enough, the reasons we don't pray enough, the, reasons, the reason we don't you know, share our, our faith enough, 
The reasons, we could even say, the reason that that person that you've been sharing your faith with shows no interest in God, it's not because of busyness. It's not because the church is somehow not relative or something like that. It's not because Jesus is old-fashioned. It's because without Christ, we are searching for satisfaction and purpose in the things of the world. That's it. It's really that simple. So don't buy into a lot of the things that are fed to you. There's always a spiritual motivation or a spiritual issue behind man's rejection of God. And now here's the second one. Refuse to believe that mankind's rejection of God will stifle God's plans. Refuse to believe that mankind's rejection of God will stifle God's plans. And here's why. The gospel is what? It's the good news that Christ has died for sinners... He paid the penalty for sin. He rose from the grave for, for, for us, right? For people, all of which have rejected God, all of which have turned their backs on God, all of which have ran toward and embraced the things of the world. We have been Herod in our own little life, haven't we? We've acted like Herod. We've been motivated like Herod in so many different ways. Yet God, being merciful and gracious, has looked on us and saved us in spite of us. So that all we're required to do, all we're asked to do, all we're commanded to do is to repent and believe. Just to follow Christ and trust that God is going to take us where he wants to take us. Now let me return to where we started this morning and then we'll be done. Daryl Davis, that man that was kind of forced into a relationship with the Ku Klux Klan. Well, that KKK member later introduced Daryl Davis to a man named Roger Kelly. And Roger Kelly was... Uh, the leader of the KKK in Maryland at that time. And Daryl Davis decided, hey, I want to meet him. He's kind of a big dog, and I'd like to strike up a conversation with him and talk with him about what this looks like and, and see how it goes. So those guys met, and they also developed a friendship that by the grace of God grew. And before you know it, Daryl was inviting his Jewish friends and his black friends over to meet his KKK friends and all to hang out together and to talk and discuss issues. And eventually... After Roger Kelly became the imperial wizard, which supposedly is like the top dude in the KKK over the entire country. After Roger Kelly became the imperial wizard, um, he dropped out of the KKK, acknowledging that he no longer believed what he used to believe. And he gave his hood and his robe to Daryl Davis, as did 12 other clansmen throughout the course of Daryl's life up until this point, all because Daryl set out to eliminate the hatred that existed for no other reason than a simple lack of information. Well, so many of the people that you know and you love and you cherish, these are people you live with, you work with, you go to school with, whatever, they have rejected Jesus without even knowing him, haven't they? Like all they know is what some overzealous Christian puts on Facebook taking something out of context or some statement of, of hatred or all they know is whatever they read about on the internet or all they know is whatever they've seen on the news. They, like Herod, have jumped to conclusions. They've made premature decisions. They've judged a book by its cover. Sometimes, unfortunately, all they've done is observed our lives, haven't they? And they've seen greed or they've seen arrogance, pride or lust or, or whatever it might be. And they've concluded that, man, if that's what it looks like to follow Christ, I don't want anything to do with that. Well, what our account does this morning is it gives us hope. It gives us hope. And that God has always planned to save mankind. Always. God was willing to move the heavens. I think literally, move the heavens. 
so that these men could find Jesus and could worship the Christ child. And that although none of us is exactly like Herod and that none of us is ever going to be king over a land and although none of us probably are ever going to have the worldly authority that Herod had, our struggle is the exact same as his and that we're tempted to adore and admire God's creation rather than to admire his, well, who he is. Admire the creator. So what we get to do is we get to encourage one another in faith and in life. And we also get to encourage those of you who have never entered this relationship that God has with us. Here's what we believe at Freshwater. I've already shared quite a bit of it, but I'll kind of share it all again. We believe that originally everything between man and God was good. They had a good relationship with man, but sin came into the world. And when sin came into the world, that relationship was broken. And for thousands of years, mankind was asking the question, how can we back, be back in relationship with God? How is it ever going to get better? And then Jesus comes this day that we celebrate at Christmas, the incarnation, God coming down to live with us. And, and Jesus came not so that you'd have a nativity to put up in your house or, or not so that we'd have a day to give gifts or anything like that, but Jesus came ultimately so that he could head to a cross. And when he hung on the cross, God was taking the sin that you and I have committed and he was placing it on Jesus. And Jesus died to pay for your sin, to pay and take upon himself the wrath that you and I rightfully deserve because of our rebellion against God. So what we get to do is we get to come like spiritual paupers and we just get to lay it all at the feet of Christ. We get to repent, we get to believe, we get to follow Jesus and we get to be in relationship with God. Now, some of you have done that. My daughter, my seven-year-old daughter, I believe, has done that. That's why we baptized her. And some of you, this is something that maybe has been sitting on the fence, and maybe you've been kind of wrestling with this for a while, and you've been questioning, okay, has this really happened? Has it not happened? Let me, let me just encourage you, that don't overcomplicate this. Don't think that this is, this is something that isn't achievable or isn't, um, can't be done or whatever. Uh, God has done everything that it takes for you to be in a relationship with him. Everything. All you need to do is repent and believe. Place your faith in Christ and God will save you. That's what the Bible promises us. So here's how you can respond to that if maybe you've decided to do that this morning or maybe you just want to hear more about what this looks like. There are three ways that we encourage people to respond here at Freshwater. The first is your Connect card. So you've got your worship guide that you received when you walked in this morning and on the edge of that is what we call a Connect card. You can Hit that bubble at the top that says, I've chosen to follow Jesus. Throw that in the giving basket as it comes by later, and we will contact you about what that looks like. The second way that you can respond is the back door. So after the service, I'll be standing at the, the, the door, and if you want to reach out, just like so many people before you have done, just say, hey, Josh, I've chosen to follow Jesus. I'd like to hear what it looks like for me to continue following Christ. I'd love to entertain that discussion at the door. And then the third way is um, whenever we sing. So here, after a couple minutes, we're going to stand and we're going to sing together. And as we sing, I'm going to stand at the connect table in the foyer. And if I can pray for you, or if you've chosen a place to trust in Jesus, want to hear more about that, I'd love to talk with you about that at that point. This is also the time in the service when we give you an opportunity to worship the Lord through giving.